Happy Easter. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> well, it is uh, it's certainly good to be together. It is certainly good to purpose our look at the events of, uh, of that Sunday morning and the events that led up to it. But truth be told, uh, for me at least, and, and maybe for you as well, this is a familiar story, isn't it? It's something that, you know, if we just come to church occasionally, maybe, it's the Sunday that we come, Easter, we sort of hear the story again and again. Those that maybe come to church with a little more regularity, when we celebrate communion, we kind of go back to those events. And, and so it's become sort of this familiar thing, but I don't want it to be a familiar thing in my life, and I imagine you as well. I want it to have sort of that impact that it should be having on each of our lives. And, and that's sort of a challenge that I, I find each time we come back together on Easter Sunday. All right, how am I going to take a familiar story and, and cause it or allow it or help it, if you will, to have its impact? And as I gave that thought, what I, what I came to realize is it's not mine to give impact to. It's the Word of God. And we'll allow the Word of God to do what the Word of God does. But I would encourage you in this. Try to a, a little bit approach this as if you've never really heard these things before. And let the wonder of these things that those that we're going to read about today, that they encountered, let that, allow that to be a little bit of what you encounter this morning. Does that sound fair? That's what we'll try to do together. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the gift of the Word of God. We do thank you, Lord, that you've recorded uh, these things for us that we could uh, we could sort of pull up that chair along the side of these things and see and watch and observe and process. And Lord, that's what we want to do. Lord, we don't want to just learn some facts. We want those facts to impact our heart. We want them to go down deep and to settle in there and to begin to bear the fruit that you desire for them to bear. And so, Lord, I, I do pray that this uh, familiar account, Lord, would have that uh, that wonder impact uh, that perhaps it has had in another day in our, in our lives. And maybe there's some with us that have never really been impacted by these things. Would you do that work in their hearts today as well? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to look at the story of the resurrection, or maybe the better word is the account of the resurrection. I want to look at it from the perspective of Mark and his gospel. As you may be aware, there are four different biographies of the life of Jesus Christ uh, that have been given to us. And in many of the cases, the material that they have given, the specific events that they recorded for us are the same uh, in two, three, four of the gospels. They never contradict one another. It's just this gospel writer chose to write about that story and this one chose to write about this one. And all four of them decided to write about the events of the last week of Jesus' life, as you can imagine. Mark, or excuse me, John writes the most. He writes almost half of his book about the last week of Jesus' life. And Mark, also the gospel writer, he gives us a number of those events as well. And maybe this week, as you were doing some personal time in the Bible, maybe you took some time to consider these things. I know a bunch of us came out on Friday night and we, we read through a number of these things. But here's some of the things that Mark records for us from the final week of Jesus' life. In chapter 11, there's 16 chapters in the book. 
In chapter 11, he tells us about that triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived north of Jerusalem, 50, 60 miles in the area of Galilee, mostly in the area of Capernaum he was staying. But he would come down to Jerusalem from time to time and celebrate the feast. And so here he is once more coming down to Jerusalem, once more in his life that is, and he comes down to Jerusalem and he triumphantly enters into the city. We call that today Palm Sunday, when he went riding in and the people praised him uh, or cheered him on, if you will. A little after that, Mark tells us about how Jesus went into the temple. And remember, the temple wasn't just a building, but it was all of the courts that surrounded that building or the fields that surrounded that building. Jesus went into those fields, those courts, and he began to cleanse the temple. There were people in there making merchandise off of the things of God and ripping people off and selling this and these animal sacrifices, yours aren't acceptable, we have to buy ours, and there's this much money, and so on. And they were alienating people from God. People didn't want to go to the temple. I'm not going there. Those people are going to rip me off. And it bothered Jesus, and he dealt with it. And the cleansing of the temples recorded for us in Mark 11. We see that that set the priest off. It set the scribes off. It set the religious leaders off. And they determined at that point that they had to get rid of this Jesus. And Mark writes about that in Matthew 11. Those are the early events of the week. As the week would carry on, we would read of the Last Supper, where Jesus would celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Then we'd read of Jesus' time in the garden, a place he'd like to go. It's not very far from the temple. You can just go down a little hill and back up another one. And there is the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're told that Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, he liked to go to that garden. It was a quiet place. Even today, Jerusalem's crazy. There's people all over the place, cars, horns, and, and stuff like that. But even today, you can go into that garden of Gethsemane, and I don't know if it's a trees or what, but it becomes his quiet place in the midst of that chaos. And Jesus liked to go there, and he would pray there with his disciples. And this evening, after that Passover meal with his disciples, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he prayed. And you, if you know the account, you know the story. There, in many ways, he wrestled with God. We read this in, Matthew, or in Mark chapter 14. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, the cup of what was about to come, the crucifixion. But then he adds, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he would continue in that way of prayer um, for a long period of time. We read a little bit after that, that the Jewish leaders then came to that garden and they arrested Jesus and they began to pray, parade him through a number of trials leading up to his crucifixion. And so he would go before some of the Jewish council, then he would go before all of the Jewish council, then he would go before the Roman leader, Pilate, and then from Pilate, he would go to another Roman leader, a guy by the name of Herod, and then Herod would send him back to Pilate, and he continued to have these trials through that evening and into the next day until finally at that last trial, the one with Pilate, Pilate determined to get rid of Jesus by crucifying him. And Jesus would then carry his own cross, and he would go out to the hill just outside of the walls of Jerusalem, and there Jesus would be crucified on our behalf. Well, Mark picks up, and this is where I want to turn our attention today, and he writes this in Mark chapter 15, verse 33. It says, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, the sixth hour of the day 
would be, or the first hour of the day would be 6 a.m. So the sixth hour of the day would be noon. They begin, they count their days a little differently, whereas we begin at 12 midnight, they begin at basically sunup. And so at 12 noon, Jesus would, uh, we would have that thing that I just read there. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. At 12 noon, when the sun is at its highest point and shining at its brightest, there was this cataclysmic event that occurs that causes darkness, as it says, over the entire land. Now, many assume that this was some sort of an eclipse that sort of entered in quickly. But eclipses, first off, there's, there's moon things. You can do science lessons on this if you'd like. Uh, but eclipses only last six minutes, seven minutes, three minutes, two minutes, depending. This lasted for three hours. Darkness came over the whole land for three hours. It must have been very eerie. There must have been a silence that came with it as everybody was trying to figure out what it was that was going on. This was not just a natural occurrence of the Earth or the Moon's rotation. This was something supernatural that was taking place. And what was taking place during this three-hour period of time of darkness is that the judgment of God's wrath was being poured out upon the atoning sacrifice, that being Jesus Christ. And with this extended darkness, the father supernaturally is highlighting the death of his son. It's, it's as if in this transaction, this is a transaction that could only take place between God and the father and God the son. And since it could only be placed, uh, take place between the two of them, it's as if a curtain was pulled over the scene. Darkness came over the whole land as the one dealt with the other, for the sin of humanity. As G. Campbell Morgan said, in the darkness, Jesus was separate for humanity for the sake of humanity. And that darkness, that three-hour period of time, must have seemed like forever. And then we're told this in verse 34 of Mark 15. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, three hours later, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then, thankfully, he translates that for us. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on, it says, and some of the bystanders hearing it, hearing him say, Eli, Eli, said, behold, he's calling Elijah. They thought he was calling for Elijah. They wrongly assumed that. What Jesus was actually doing was drawing our attention or quoting for himself an Old Testament psalm. Psalm chapter 22, it's an amazing psalm. I encourage you to read it and think about it, especially in light of this week that we are in. But Jesus, that psalm says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you far from the words of my groaning? And for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus is experiencing the separation that sin brings. As he says to his father, why are you forsaking me? For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus is experiencing the separation that sin brings. Jesus was the sinless one, never sinned, and thus had never experienced separation from his God that sin brings. But here, as he is taking sin upon himself, for the first time he is experiencing it, and he words it or he describes it by saying, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing the rejection that he was undergoing as the sin bearer. Jesus bore the sin of the world. 
And he cries, Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? Now, if we piece together the other gospel writers, again, John wrote what he wrote from his perspective, which he thought would be helpful for us to understand the life of Jesus. Other gospel writers thought other things that they observed would be important. And so if we piece together the accounts of Matthew and we put also the accounts of John there, we learn that immediately following those words, Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? Or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you add what uh, John said and you add what Matthew said, we discover this from John. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And then how in response to that statement, there were some that were near the cross that ran and they brought a sponge that was wet uh, with a liquid of sorts and they put it on a stick, they lifted it up. He's probably eight, 10 feet up in the air. They lift it up and they wet his lips that he can take a, a little sip of that water, so to speak, or that drink that was there. It says, and some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him. Now, I don't think there's anything super spiritual in what they're doing and in what he's requesting. I don't think there's something, let's, what does he mean? I think his mouth was dry. He wanted to say something, but because it was so dry, he was having difficulty in saying something. And so he says, I thirst. And they run, they bring him a little bit of a liquid to wet his whistle, if you will, as we say, wet his tongue, wet his lips, so that he could be able to speak what he wants to speak and cry out what he wants to cry out. Mark's account then goes on to say that Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. Now Mark doesn't tell us what he said with that loud cry, but Luke in his gospel and John in his gospel do. Luke says this, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And John adds this. Now, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. There is great significance in both of those statements. So I'm really glad that John and Luke recorded them for us. In saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus is making it absolutely clear that no one took his life but that he gave his life. He yielded up his spirit. And when it says that, when he says it is finished, he is declaring in that statement that a satisfactory payment has been paid. As you may be aware, the Bible wasn't written originally in English. The New Testament was primarily written in Greek. The Old Testament primarily was written in Hebrew. None of us not many of us here read those, and so we're thankful that it was translated into a language that we could read. But in the original Greek language, that statement, it is finished, it's actually one word in the Greek language. It's the word tetelestai, maybe you've heard of it. It's an interesting word to put in this location because it's an economic term. It's not a term that you would normally just use in everyday life, but it's an economic term that translates pretty um, accurately to paid in full. It's a term that they would you know, stamp on your bill if you were making payments on it and you finally made the final payment, they would stamp on there, paid in full, it would say, to Tetelestai. And Jesus there, as he cries out with his final words, it is finished, and then yields up his spirit, 
he's yelling out, your debt has been paid in full. That's what he wanted everyone to hear. That's why he needed to wet his lips and his tongue so that he wouldn't just sort of whisper it or mouth it, but he could proclaim it, your debt has been paid in full. And then he yielded up his spirit. Jesus went to the cross to pay a debt that he himself did not owe. But he went to the cross to pay the debt that every one of us had owed. And when the time was finished, he could yield up his spirit and say that the debt has been paid in full. Jesus didn't die on the cross from exhaustion, as many crucifixion victims did. He didn't die from a loss of blood, from the beating and the stabbings and all that stuff that he had to go through. Jesus accomplished what he had set out to accomplish. And then after declaring that the debt was paid in full, as it says, he yielded up his spirit. Some of the very first recorded words of God in the Bible, you can guess, are found in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 2, we read these words. Now, this is right after the creation of all the other things that's recorded in Genesis chapter 1, where God speaks to his, the first created man, Adam, and he tells him this. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, I'm sure every one of us here knows that Adam disobeyed God in that command. And rather than obeying God in that command, Adam and his wife, they partook, they partook of that forbidden fruit. And they experienced the consequences for having done so. Now, what's interesting, if you look at that passage and the wording relatively carefully, not the special languages, just read the English language, and you just look at it somewhat carefully, you discover something that should stand out to you, should cause you to take note. It says this, the Lord God took man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And again, Adam and his wife Eve, they went to partake of that fruit. And as you continue to read the Genesis account, you will discover that Adam and Eve, they do eventually die. Many years later, hundreds of years later, they physically come to the end of their days and they die. But what you'll note is, it says there, in that day that you eat, you shall surely die. And again, they don't physically die for another hundred, a couple, many hundred years later. And that, so that causes us to wonder, are we talking about a different form of death here? Because the Bible is very clear with what it's trying to say. You're never going to read a passage of Scripture and say, well, you get the idea. You know what I'm trying to say. It's going to be very clear with what it wants to say. And it says, in that day, you will die. What you notice, even though they go on to live many more years, what you notice is, in that passage and the ones that follow it, is that something was clearly different in the relationship between God and man as a result of that act of disobedience. Something had entered into the life of man that separated God from man. And so whereas just before the incident where they took that forbidden fruit, 
The scripture says that Adam had walked with God in the cool of the day. It's a phrase which means enjoyed a sweetness of fellowship with God, where that had been the experience before. The next thing that we read after this event is God coming to look for Adam. He calls out, Adam, where are you, essentially? And Adam, we're told, and his wife are hiding. And they're covering themselves, and they're keeping themselves from God. You see, they did not die physically on that day, as the statement might seem to suggest, if you look at it uh, quickly. But they did, however, die spiritually. As a result of their sin, there was a, now a separation between God and man. As a result of their sin, fellowship had been broken, and separation had set in. Now that separation, and I'll get back to the cross in a second, that separation was symbolized in the construction of the Jewish temple, or prior to that, the Jewish tabernacle. Same thing, essentially. One was temporary, one was permanent. And that, that, was, that separation was symbolized in that temple. It was symbolized by the huge veil or curtain that was set up. Now, the temple building was just a relatively, I think it was 90 feet long in length. It was, a little, it was a rectangle of a building. And it was divided into two rooms. There was a smaller room that was toward the back of the building or the front of the building, however you want to talk, look at it. You came in this door here, and all the way at the end, there was a smaller square room. And then in front of that, there was a, a little twice as large rectangular room. And separating those two rooms was a huge curtain. Some versions of our Bible call it a veil. It was some 60 feet high. It was about 6 to 12 inches thick. On the one side of the veil was called the most holy place, also called sometimes the holy of holies. And on the other side of the veil, the part you would walk into or the priest would walk into, that was called the holy place. And separating the holy place from the most holy place was this huge veil, 60 feet high, 6 to 12 inches thick. It was a veil or a curtain that only one person on one day of the year, one person on one day of the year was allowed to pass behind. That one person was the high priest of the Jews, and that one day was the Day of Atonement, what we commonly call in our country Yom Kippur. One person, one day of the year. They actually would tie a rope around the foot of that high priest in case for some reason as he went behind that veil, if there was some secret sin in his life that he was hiding and thinking nobody would know, not even God would be able to know, if he went behind that veil to the place where God's presence resided in a special way and was struck down dead, he had bells on his uh, robe that he was wearing and those bells stopped, they could then pull him out because anybody else that went back in there wasn't allowed to go back behind that veil. Are you with me? I wish I had a picture that we could show you here. Behind the veil in the most holy place, God chose to allow his presence to reside or to dwell in a unique way. Now, certainly, he's the, the Lord of all the earth, and he dwells in all the earth. But in a special and a unique way, he allowed his presence to dwell behind that, whole, that veil there. And only one person on one day of the year could go there. Now, back to the cross when Jesus said, it is finished, and when Jesus yielded up his spirit, notice what Mark goes on to say about that curtain. He writes, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You can read other places. It talks about a, a great earthquake that took place. He had this three hours of darkness. There was an earthquake. The tombs were opened up. Um, 
And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that veil that separated the place where God's presence was pleased to uniquely dwell was torn in two. And that's very significant because what it does is it represents that access has been granted to all, that they might come directly into the presence of God through the work of the one whose work, whose work tore that veil. The penalty for man's sin, that which caused separation, had been satisfied once and for all, and the price for sin had been paid. And you'll notice the veil was torn from top to bottom. God, and not man, had made a way. A way for man once more to enjoy the presence of God which our sin prevents. The way is the work of Jesus on the cross. And to quote him, Jesus says, I am the way... I am the truth, and I am the life. That's the claim Jesus made. He goes on and says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Through me and the work I just did on the cross. I've opened the veil. I've torn it. Access is now made available to all. Now, what happens next is what I really wanted to draw our attention to in our remaining time this morning. The veil has been torn that changes life for every one of us. We can now have access to God through his son. But Mark continues on there. This is chapter 15. And Mark says, Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. Now a centurion is a Roman military official. They were a commander of a hundred people. A centurion. You can see sent there, that root there for a hundred. And a centurion would have been a, a pretty lifelong soldier in the Roman army. They would have participated in many crucifixions. Jesus is not the only one ever to be crucified. Of course, we know the two thieves that were alongside of him. But the, the Romans crucified some 60,000 individuals in their society. And so it was something that they did with somewhat regularity as they ruled over here the nation of Israel. And so this man as a centurion would have risen in the ranks. He would have participated in many crucifixions prior to this crucifixion. But something about this crucifixion was different. Something that caused him to take notice. That Jesus, at the time of his death, there was something about it that caused this centurion to conclude, truly, this man was the Son of God. Earlier on in Jesus' ministry, before this day, here on the cross, Earlier on, Jesus said this, when I am lifted up from the earth, and, he, and the context makes it clear, he was talking about the cross. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. It's when we proclaim the name of Christ, Christ crucified, that that has the ability to impact the heart and draw people to God. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself, all people to myself. And here we are, just a few moments following Jesus' death, and Jesus is already fulfilling that prediction. And he's doing it with the most unexpected of individuals. Because Jesus was lifted up on a cross, crucified, we have a hardened Roman official that is either drawn to God or drawn nearer to a relationship with God. And he would not be the last. 
Look down at verse 42. This is Mark 15, verse 42. There we discover that two Jewish officials were drawn to him as well. The centurion was a Roman official. These are two Jewish officials. And you recall that it was the Jewish officials as a whole that pushed so incessantly for Jesus to be killed and crucified. Verse 42 of Mark tells us this. Now, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus, that he might be able to take it down from the cross uh, and give it a proper burial. In John's account of this event, we learn that another Jewish official, official joined Joseph, and that was a man by the name of Nicodemus. John tells us, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's obviously a lot of money. But the greater expense for these two men, for Joseph, for Nicodemus, these council uh, members of the Jewish council, the people that actually pushed to have Jesus on the cross, the greater expense is who they are associating themselves with. This was a criminal that the Jews, the Jewish leaders, felt needed to be executed. And here now are some of those Jewish officials saying, you know what, I know that we don't like them apparently, but I'm willing to put my lot in with them. I'm willing to be connected with and associated with him. They would cast their lot with the one that had just been crucified and the one who had just died. And so after having confirmed that Jesus was in fact dead, Pilate released the body to these men. And as the passage goes on to say, they brought a linen shroud. They wrapped the body of Jesus rather quickly, but no doubt delicately, respectfully. They wrapped the body of Jesus and they laid it in a nearby tomb. I don't care who knows if I'm associated with this Jesus. It's the right thing for me to do. And so Joseph and Nicodemus, they do so. And so we see Roman officials that are transformed by Jesus' death. We're seeing Jewish officials that are being transformed by Jesus' death. Some of the other gospels, they talk about one of the hardened criminals that was actually crucified with Jesus being transformed by Jesus' dying process, his death as he had been mocking Jesus along with the other one and all the people on the ground, and he has this change of heart even as he is dying and says to the Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. After having earlier mocked, this criminal is transformed by the events of the cross. Mark begins the next chapter, chapter 16, and he introduces us to a group of women women that were followers of Jesus. Verse 1 says, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they, brought, they bought spices so that they might go and they might anoint him. And as we'll see, these women were transformed by the events that transpired. transpired. Jesus was crucified on a Friday, Good Friday, we know that. As observant Jews, the, these women would have done no work on the Sabbath for the Jews. That was that Saturday that followed. And so as the passage says, when Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and a third woman whose name is Salome, they return now to the tomb that they might give Jesus, if you will, his body, a proper uh, preparation for burial. 
it's very important for us to understand that these women, they went to the tomb not expecting to find anything out of the norm. They expected to find a dead body. They would be reminded once again of the horrible things that they had seen that had been done to that body a couple of days earlier on that Friday. They returned to simply prepare it. This was a recently departed dear loved one that they wanted to give a little bit of dignity to by preparing his body properly that it might be laid in the tomb, as far as they know, for the rest of time. What they found instead would forever transform them. And as the Roman official and those two Jewish officials and even that hardened criminal discovered there was something about the death of Christ that would change their lives forever. Mark goes on, he says this, Now, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was a very large stone. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It says they, they told nothing to anyone, that is, until they got to the disciples. And then they told them the whole story. Mark tells us they came very early on the first day of the week. Luke, he words it this way. He calls it early dawn. This means actually even before the sun is really up. There's just a little bit of light that is starting to, enough to give them the ability to make it. As soon as they could, Sabbath is over, as soon as they could, before the sun was even up, they said, we want to get there and we want to prepare his body. He deserves that one final act of kindness. If we can restore just a little bit of dignity to this man who had it taken from him in the way that he did, then we want to do so. But again, notice they're not coming to see if Jesus had risen. Verse 1 tells us they're coming that they might go and anoint him. That is the spices to prepare him for burial. They're not coming to see if Jesus had fulfilled what he said he would do. Jesus said he would be crucified or killed and rise again. He had told his disciples that. We read this in Matthew chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and that he must be killed. That's how it's worded in the original. And that he would be raised again on the third day. Jesus had told them that. If you remember that passage, you remember the disciples heard all the parts about him being killed, and that's kind of where they stopped listening. As Jesus says, and I'll rise again the third day, they stopped with, no, you can't be killed, Lord. We're not going to let that happen. And that's where they settled. So Jesus had told them he'd be killed and rise again, but these women, they're not going to the tomb to see if what Jesus said was true. They had completely forgotten about those things. They went to prepare his body for a permanent burial. I think they were a lot like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is a city that's outside of Jerusalem. And we read in one account that Jesus actually appears to two disciples that are walking on the road to Emmaus. 
and they're talking about this, and Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, where have you been, man? Everyone in Jerusalem knows what's going on. You know, just walking near us, you should have been able to pick up what we were talking about. He said, no, tell me. And they start explaining the whole crucifixion of Jesus Christ to them. And they say a very interesting thing in there as they're explaining to this strange guy that's walking alongside of them that doesn't know what is going on. As they're explaining this about this Jesus, they say this, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. But obviously he's not because he, they killed him. Notice that word hoped in the past tense. See, I think that's what these women were feeling. As they went to the temple that day, excuse me, to the tomb that day to anoint his body for burial, they had a sense of hopelessness. They hoped in the past tense. Jesus was a remarkable individual in their lives. They had thought he might even be the Messiah, but they killed him. He's dead. So obviously that dream is as dead as he is. And to their surprise, when they arrive at the tomb, they discover a number of different things. One, at this huge stone, probably five feet tall, five feet wide, this round stone that was over the mouth of the, the grave, the tomb that Jesus was placed in, that the large stone had been rolled away. And they discover, it says in, in Mark's version, they see a young man dressed in white sitting on the right side. Other versions tell us that it's an angel. Other, not versions, uh, other gospels uh, writers tell us it was an angel, tell us there was actually two angels that were there. And one of those angels says to them, do not be alarmed, they're freaked out, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, and the angel says, he has risen, he is not here. He says, come on in, take a look, you can go in there. If the tomb that we visit when we go to Jerusalem is the one, which they think it is, it's a room, two rooms, essentially. And so you walk into this one, and then you turn to your right, and there's a whole other room there. And there's a place where a body can be laid, if you will, on a bed carved out of the stone. And he says, come on in, take a look here. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. Again, these are familiar events to many of us, but they were not familiar events to these women as they experienced these things for the first time. And I think it does us well to try and imagine from time to time as we are reading the scripture, the swing of emotions that these woman, women would have been feeling. Grief and sorrow and fear and confusion and hopelessness. And what now, what is going on? Who's this guy and what is he saying? And come in and take a look. Notice how the angel directs these women. He proceeds, he paints this contrast. This is important. He, he paints a contrast between what was and a contrast with what is. And so again, he says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He was here, but he's here no longer. He was crucified and dead, but he is now Risen, he says to them. As followers of Christ, I think we talk a lot about Jesus dying for our sins. And sometimes I think we speak in such a way that we give this impression that what really matters from Holy Week is the death of Jesus. 
that the reality, like what I mean by that is that without the resurrection, that's okay. What's really important is his death. And certainly his, his death is very important. But the reality is this, without the resurrection, there would be no proof that his death actually accomplished anything. It's just another person that died. You know, recently, my wife and I, we went and visited some historical sites, and we see the grave where this president or this person or this soldier had died. And you look, and you're like, hmm, I appreciate that. That's, you know, like, what do you say? Like, okay, cool. Thanks. You know, I appreciate you doing that or whatever. And that's what Jesus' death would be limited to. But with the resurrection, we actually have proof that his death actually accomplished something. We actually have proof that Jesus' offering of his life for our life was actually accepted by God. The Apostle Paul, he would tell us this. This is from the book of Romans. He would say this, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. He was declared. Now, that doesn't mean he became the Son of God because of that event. The word declared, it has this idea of proclaiming, proving, demonstrating that he was the Son of God, and he did it with power by his resurrection from the dead. Here's the proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. We also learn from the, our study of the book of Hebrews that because of Jesus' resurrection, that he is ever able to continue ministering to his Father on our behalf. That is, we're told that he continually or constantly makes intercession for the saints to his Father. Hebrews says this, He holds a priesthood forever because he continues forever. He's also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Had Jesus not been resurrected, his ministry would have ceased. His ministry on our behalf would have ceased. But because he did rise from the dead, his ministry continues perpetually. We learn a third thing that is ours because of Jesus' resurrection, and that is the guarantee of a future resurrection of all of us that believe as well. Paul, again, this time in the book of 1 Thessalonians, says that because he rose from the dead, he assures us that those of us that believe will rise from the dead. Paul's words are this, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died. And so remember, when the payment for sin had been paid in full, and Jesus yielded his spirit, remember that the veil of the temple, the curtain of the temple, was torn in two. That which previously prevented access into the presence of God had been removed, allowing access into the presence of God. Our sins, which have separated us from God, Jesus removed that separation. The theological term for this is the term justification. And you can remember that term as not just some, yeah, I know that word. What's it mean? I don't really know. But you can remember it this way. Justification is this, just as if I never sinned. That's justification in the theological sense. Just as if I never sinned. God is holy and God is without sin. And it is only those that are either holy or those that have had their sin covered that can enter into his holy presence. Now, I won't speak for you, but I'll tell you this. 
that doesn't describe me. I'm not a person that is without sin, which means I need a covering for my sin. And I suspect that each one of us in this room, you know, let's be honest, each one of us in this room are not people without sin. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, well, then I don't believe the Bible. All right, let me just observe your life for a little while. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means every one of us, we can't enter into the presence of God through the first means, which is perfect holiness. And it means we're only going to be able to enter into the presence of God through the second means by having our sin covered. Justification is God's means of dealing with our sin problem and the subsequent separation that our sin brought. Justification is God looking on our lives and seeing us as if we'd never sinned. Again, to once more quote Paul, that can only happen because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul would write this, Romans 4. He said, it, now the context, you can read it. He's talking about righteousness to be without sin. He says, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered for our trespasses, that's the crucifixion, and raised for our justification. That's the resurrection. And so today, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Today, once more, this time of year, we are reminded, while it appeared that all hope was lost as a result of Jesus' death on the cross, the reality is the cross and the subsequent resurrection is the only reason that we can have any hope as sinful men and women. And I need that hope. Do you? The, that truth... That changed that Roman centurion. That truth is what changed those Jewish officials. That truth is what the two Marys and the third woman named Salome, what they went away completely different because of. And if you keep reading through your Bible, you will soon discover that's the truth that transformed the apostle Peter. It's the truth that transformed the other disciples. It's the truth that caused the doubting Thomas to become the believing Thomas. It's the truth that caused that one man who Jesus, maybe lovingly, I don't know, referred to as a, a son of thunder, that one son, John, who wanted to call down fire and destroy his enemies. And Jesus labeled him, you're a hothead. You're a son of thunder. And it would transform that son of thunder into the apostle of love. It's that truth that took an angry self-righteous, cruel, and vicious rabbi, the Apostle Paul, and transformed his life and his eternity. It's that truth that has changed in this room so many of our lives. And it's that truth that changed my life. Here we are 2,000 years later, and Jesus is still impacting and transforming lives. And the reason that he does and the reason that he is, is because outside of Jerusalem, there is an empty tomb. And it testifies that he is not here, he is risen. He was dead, but he is now alive. He was crucified for our sins, and the resurrection is the evidence that that payment was received to Telestai, paid in full. The Bible teaches that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, it also teaches that we are made alive and we are only made alive with Christ in his resurrection. 
And my sincere hope, my prayer this week as I was contemplating these things has, is and has been that this would be the experience that everyone in this room has experienced. New life in Jesus Christ. Dead in your sins, but now made alive in him. And so while I wish everyone a happy Easter, certainly, happy Resurrection Day, for those of you that get bothered by happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day to you, but most importantly, my prayer is that regardless of what background you've come in here with, Roman official, Jewish officials, a group of women, some close disciples, whatever your background is that you came into this room with, that you would leave here with a deeper understanding of why the cross, what was accomplished at the cross, and what it means that there is an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. I want to close with these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God, circle those words, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his in kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. Those are great words, my friends. Make them your own. Let's pray. And so, Father, we once more... We take some time to meditate on the events of uh, Good Friday and the events of uh, Easter Sunday. Your death covering us, opening the veil, providing access into your presence, your resurrection, revealing that it has been accepted and received and that new life can be any one of ours that come to you by faith. And so, Father, I pray for each of us. Lord, for each of us that not only recognize our sin, but that there is a solution to that sin problem. That through Christ we can come into your presence and enjoy fellowship with you, even as Adam and Eve once did when they walked with you unhindered. Bless this gathering of individuals, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.